Mormon Stories Podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a contribution to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. For all this and more, please check out mormonstories.org. And thank you for listening. Dr. Richard Bushman, thank you so much for coming on Mormon Stories again. Okay, it's a pleasure. I guess this episode, we're hoping I'm hoping that we can cover maybe two main topics. The first is Joseph Smith as translator, mm-hmm. which would cover the Book of Mormon, maybe the Book of Abraham, and a bit about the Kinderhook plates. And then a and then a second section just about the three and the eight witnesses. So that's kind of the overview. Let's let's start talking about the Book of Mormon. When did Joseph Smith first learn that he was going to be uh, helping out with the Book of Mormon? Well, I have no insight other than the traditional day uh, in September, uh, eighteen twenty-three. And what did he? What did for for those who may not know the story? What did he? What did he? Oh, explain? I see what you're getting at. Well, uh, this is. Uh, probably the most fabulous of all Joseph Smith's stories, an angel appears in his room when he's seeking, when he, that is Joseph, was seeking forgiveness once more, and um, grants him the forgiveness, but then rushes on to the main topic of the night, which was the presence uh, of gold plates uh, kept by an ancient people over a thousand-year period or more, uh, with the fullness of the gospel. And uh, Joseph is told he's to recover those plates and translate them, which he did in time and published them in 1830 as the Book of Mormon. Okay. And who did who did he tell? Did he tell anyone when he had this experience? Well, yes. Uh, I think myself that he was very reluctant to talk about the first vision, uh, may not have told his family, but here the angel explicitly tells him to inform his father. So we have a good account, Joseph's own account, of him telling his father, and and instead of being uh, scorned, uh, is believed. And so um, from then on, it seems to become part of family lore. Everyone in the family knew about it, and my, I think there's evidence that the word seeped out into the neighborhood as well, little by little. So Joseph's family knew that he had seen an angel, an angel Moroni, according to the account, and right. they they believed him, thought it credible, and the neighborhood started um, wondering about that as well. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, what was the neighborhood's reaction? Did they did they persecute him for that? Do we know? I don't think there's much evidence of outright persecution. Um, you know, we can imagine uh, a lot of scoffing and derision. And the best evidence we have of sort of the general attitude towards the Smiths 
comes from the Hurlbut affidavits of 1833, and there there's a general sense of the Smiths being uh, given to fantasy, uh, involved in magical money digging, and perhaps prone to lying. Uh, as I recall, I can't remember any direct uh, description of the Moroni in the plates in that in their accounts, but um, uh, you can imagine that those same attitudes would probably greet Joseph Smith if he were to talk about the angel. And so, and so the the understanding both from his father and from the neighbors was that jo- that was that Joseph was going was he that he not only spoke with an angel but that he was going to produce a book, or was the production of the book not not as well known? Well, I don't want to overdo the neighbors knowing all about this. Okay. I I'm just surmising. Yeah, right. That, that they knew about it. The family we do know they knew about it, um, and. When the book comes into the picture, you know, it's hard to know, except that in that those early um, months after the uh, vision of Moroni, Lucy talks about him sitting with the family and talking and expatiating on uh, the ancient inhabitants of America. So that implies that the family knew there was a history involved that isn't just a treasure, pure treasure-seeking operation. And that was a question I was going to ask. I've read some accounts where Joseph would sit with his family by the fire at nights and go on and on about what ancient America was like and what the Indians were like and what the ruins were like. And this was all before he actually ever saw the plates. What, is that, do I have it wrong there? Well, uh, it's easy to exaggerate that. We're, we depended upon Lucy uh, saying, uh, recording that experience. But it was only a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, then Alvin died, and as she says, it closed down the whole operation. So you can't think of uh, Joseph Smith as perpetually spinning tales of uh, ancient America to his family. Uh, and so far as we know, judging from the Hurlbut affidavits anyway, he didn't tell those tales to, um, to the neighbors either. The neighbors did talk about Joseph Sr.'s uh, intricate magic rituals. So they were sort of um, looking for fantastic stories coming out of the Smiths. But none of them uh, mentioned ancient America or Indians or anything of that kind. So my guess is there might have been some of it, but it wasn't uh, a big-time constant uh, avocation of Joseph's to tell those stories. When you read, um, like Simon Southerton's book, he makes it sound like the entire county or state was just completely uh, enwrapped and, and fascinated with the idea of Indian mounds and buried treasure and f- speculation as to the origin of, of the Native Americans, and that there was just this gripping era of fascination with all things Indian. Yeah. Do you, do you get that sense, too? No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, it, it's a trick of the historians. You can, you know, you collect, you scrape and scrape and hunt and find every little count of Indians. 
uh, every book ever written about Indians. You go back in time and find books about Indians. And you pile these all together in 10 or 15 pages, and it gives the impression that the world thought about nothing else but Indians and their origins. But, you know, that isn't true. It's, uh, you could do that for 50 subjects uh, by collecting that stuff. I think you've got to find things that are uh, closer to home to Joseph Smith. And, you know, you search through the, the newspapers around him, and, you know, something comes up once in a while, uh, but uh, it's a little tiny item buried in the back of the paper somewhere. And you don't find anything in, in Lucy's account or anybody who was close to Joseph Smith that they were up to their neck in Indian lore. So uh, I personally think that there's a kind of a fallacy uh, of magnification uh, in just the way historians do their job. Uh, and until you can get something that's really closer to Joseph Smith, to his family or his immediate friends, uh, I'm. I think you have to reserve judgment on how much they were interested in Indians. Okay, so that that may be overstated that the the way they paint that that uh, fascination. So, um, it 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 seems like the treasure digging that we talked about last time was happening kind of in parallel to the the Moroni vision and and Joseph visiting the plates real quickly um you know there's a there's been people who've written about that when they did their excursions they would actually go to hills and see caverns under underground with an angel guarding a sword and buried treasure is that um is that happening in parallel to this then Yes. If you look through the folklore of that period, there's a lot of treasure-seeking folklore, and frequently there was a guardian angel. I think that's probably found in lots of lore in all countries and many times. So, um, yeah, that's in the air. I think it's definitely there for people who did that sort of thing. That would be kind of a common expectation. And are are there accounts that describe, you know, Joseph on an excursion with people where there was an angel guarding something and stuff in the room that they couldn't get to or whatever? Is there, are there specific accounts where they talk about what happened on an excursion? Uh, there are accounts of describing what happens. I'm thinking primarily at the moment of the Hurlbut affidavits going out and you know, killing a, what was it, a sheep, drawing a circle in blood, and that kind of thing. But um, are you talking about this, are you referring specifically to the Smith family or the people in the neighborhood? Yes, what, what yes. They saw? Yeah, well, was Joseph, I mean, it's weird to hear about a sheep being sacrificed and somebody not saying the right word and so they weren't able to get to the treasure and they're being a guardian. You think about, well, was Moroni being the guardian? And you kind of, it's hard not to blur these things together. So I'm yeah. just wondering to what extent these things were happening simultaneously and how one might sift through the real vision from the, from the folk magic stuff or if yeah. they're, if they're not really overlapping. Well, 
uh, I, I think that's a hard thing to do, and and it is a an inquiry worth making because I think there may be something to Dan Vogel's point that Joseph Senior, who probably by this time was involved in treasure seeking. Uh, would have put more credibility in Joseph's story simply because there were parallels that this is what he'd been led to expect. That's that's conjecture, but uh, I don't think it's a far-fetched uh, conjecture entirely. But I, I'm not aware of stories involving Joseph and his father <coughs> where there was an angel with the sword there are stories of retreating chests and various things that are similar to it, the elusive treasure, uh, but not... Uh, someone can probably correct me on this, up to this, in this more than I, but I can't offhand think of anything my, myself. And what always impresses me about this is in the stories we do have involving the Smith family, Joseph's kind of uh, on the edge of it. He's in the house, supposedly looking in his in his stone, and Joseph Senior is sending in for information from him. Hmm. So, I, I don't. Um, I, I think it's un, undetermined just exactly how much Joseph Junior himself was involved in these expeditions. Hmm. Okay. So tell us about. Uh the visits to the plates prior to him actually getting them. How, how many times did he go? When did he go? Did he ever bring anybody? And what happened when he would actually go? Do we know what happened when he would actually go to try and obtain the plates? Well, we don't know what happened because um, the three best accounts, which are Joseph himself, his mother, and Oliver Cowdery, all differ uh, in significant detail. And... Um, Oliver Cowdery, for example, has this huge, long, many-page speech from Moroni warning Joseph Smith about money digging and seeking the plates for his personal gain. Uh, Joseph sums that up in a sentence or two. So we have no idea where Oliver Cowdery claimed could have got this information, whether He's exercising what was thought at that time to be the right of historian to put speeches in the mouths of historical characters or what was going on. But uh, basically, you know, there's the trip to the hill, the opening of the box, trying to get the plates out and being frustrated in some fashion. And that's where there's debate. Did he get them out and then he's whapped and they are no longer there or exactly what happens I don't know if we're ever going to be able to to uh, straighten that out. But the point is, he was frustrated in the early first attempt and told he must come back again. And the warning was to stay away from the money diggers, that some there was something polluting about the money digging operation. And he, so he's sort of having to extricate himself from that. Uh, that culture. So was he was he told he would go four times, or was he told to go once a year until he was worthy enough to receive them? And each time it was like a a test. Oh, you're you're not worthy yet, so come back yeah. next year. I think it's the latter. 
that he's always feeling like he he may be failing the test. And Lucy obviously is anxious that he um, do something else or do something exactly right. And here you do get a little flavor of the money digging because it's as if you know the guardian is giving these instructions which must be must be met in exactitude and then you'll get the plates so and that goes along with sort of the magical formula notion uh, and then there are all these stories well you got to bring Alvin no you got to bring Emma no you got to bring someone else which are told uh, a lot of them by his critical neighbors and actually money digging neighbors so um you know, you don't know exactly what to make of them, but I could picture the family itself sort of being involved in that money-digging mentality, uh, sort of carrying over uh, their attitudes there into this gold plates thing. I mean, they don't know what's involved. It takes them quite a while to get straight in their mind what this is all about anyway. Is it is it safe to say that they were financially destitute and that that was a strong motivator for the for the gold digging? They, they well, were hoping to get rich to to ease their woes. Uh, destitute's a strenuous word. They're not starving. They have a farm. They've got work, so they're not flattened. But they are poor, and worst of all, they face the pressure of these mortgages on their house and on their land. And that is the scariest thing of all, that you'll lose your means of making a living. So, yes, they are moved, but to go uh, to equate money digging with poverty, you know, that's that's a little uh, raw. Uh, But we do know that uh, people all over the world, the poor, always have that dream of money. I mean, they go gambling nowadays in Atlantic City and... So, you know, roughly there must have been some equivalent. My guess is, though, that it was more entrancing. They don't really think they're going to make a pile of dough. I mean, they're always hopeful, but um, to say, well, we're poor, we can't pay the mortgage, let's go out and dig up treasure, uh, that's a a little bit crude, I would say. Hmm. It's almost like uh, what you do when you don't have TV. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. It's entertaining, exciting. Uh, so, um, so the fourth, the fourth visit. So, he never brought anyone on the visits. No one ever came with him on the visits. Is that right? To the uh, hill. Yes. Um, so far as I know, no one. Um, Emma g- goes with him to the hill on that last night in 1827. But uh, we don't know whether she walked up to the site or sat in the carriage down below. I think Dan Vogel does say that she sat in the carriage. We may have a source for that. But uh, so far as we know, he's he's alone, yeah. And one last thing. When he was unable to obtain the plates, did they do the... Did he, like, try and get him, and they would go into the earth... Was there this whole disappearing or going away from him as he tried to touch them kind of thing going on? Do we know? Well, as I say, there are lots of tales, and it's very hard to straighten them out. I think the bottom line is we don't know for sure. For sure. 
what happened. But there's some that, that claim that that was the what happened, maybe? Um, something like that. I mean, this is what you would expect. These are money-digging yeah. people. Okay. The people who are talking about it. Okay, so in 1827 then, is that when he does finally receive the plates? Right. And that's when he and Emma, he and Emma had eloped and moved to New York. And it was, it was while they were in New York that he got the plates. Is that right? Or had they gone back right. to Pennsylvania? They had not yet gone back to Pennsylvania to live with Emma's parents again. <coughs> right. So he gets the plates. Um, and so, so how long does he have the plates in, in New York before they go to Pennsylvania? Uh, I can't remember the exact date, but it's that fall. Um, you know, they're being hassled by all of their old money-digging pals who uh, get the rumor and think they have a right to uh, some of this treasure. So uh, that seems to have been one of the motives of of going back. And I'm sure Emma wanted to reconcile with her father if she possibly could. So I've got in my mind November, but it was something like that in 1827 that they headed south. So they... and. And Emma was not allowed to see the plates, right? And right. did Joseph's family know that he had finally obtained the plates? Oh yeah. And no, did they? And did they try and get him or ask him to see him? Where did he hide them? Do we know? Well, uh, they, if you believe Le- uh, Lucy, they're all trying. They're all helping Joseph Smith to conceal the plates. The, the curious ones are, first off, the money digging neighbors. The Chases, especially Willard Sally Chase, uh, and probably others, and then um, Lucy Harris, Martin's wife, who is intensely curious to about them. And and how did Martin come on the scene, Martin Harris? Well, Martin Harris is in the village. They know him. They work for him. They know he's um, uh, a, a source of support. And um, there is this famous story, which I suppose is true, of him uh, being open-minded to the possibility of something marvelous going on and defending Joseph Smith against the people in the village who were making fun of him and then um, offering to help him get out of town by paying off some of his local debts and paying for the cost of the trip. So that's, um, I think that's probably a fair account of what actually happened. Was he just a friend of the Smith family then? Martin yeah. Harris? Right. Okay. And so, so Joseph and Emma uh, decide they need to leave. They they borrow some money from Martin, right? Right. And and Martin uh, knew that the plates existed, but he hadn't yet really been involved in in what would become the book at that point. Is that right? Right. He hasn't started to translate. He hasn't seen the plates. He's just um, uh, an aide. What do we know about Martin Harris's spiritual and religious life before he meets Joseph? What type of religious person, spiritual person, superstitious person is he? Well, that's very hard to determine at this point, because as soon as he, contrary to overwhelming negative public opinion in Palmyra, shows an interest in Joseph Smith, He's immediately demeaned as a superstitious character given to all sorts of fantastic beliefs. So at the same time, people say that he's a stable farmer, a man of judgment and wisdom. Uh, 
they also make these accusations about his uh, religious instability. So how do you straighten that out? I don't know. Um, I don't think of him as a pillar of wisdom, particularly. Uh, he seems to be, be fairly astute and shrewd. Uh, but uh, I also wouldn't want to say that you know he was just uh, he would just tumble for any superstitious story that came along. I don't think we have evidence of that. Do we know if he was members of other churches or if he followed other charismatic leaders prior to Joseph? Do we know anything about that? Um, well, you catch me out here. I just, why, why do I think he's a Quaker? I'm not sure. But um, I, I can't tell you for sure. But I don't think we know of him following other leaders. I can't recall anything to that effect. Okay. So he funds Emma and Joseph's return uh, to... Emma's house, uh, the Hales, right? Mm -hmm. And how were they received? Well, uh, with tears and rejoicing, all is forgiven, my dear. Uh, so they, uh, you know, the father really loves her, and she, he didn't want her to marry Joseph, this ne'er-do-well. But he's willing to accept them back and give them a place in his house. But then the plates get in the way, and the fact that Joseph will not show the plates to to uh, to uh, Harris or to uh, Isaac. Hale, Isaac Hale is more than he can he can stomach. So he he puts them out in a little house um, on the property where they could have a place of their own, and that's where a lot of the translation then took place. There, there's a there's an account I've read of this moment of truth between Joseph and Isaac where Isaac basically calls Joseph on the carpet. Joseph is, it seems like he's, they, they say that he's crying and apologizing. And some have even written that he's confessed that he never ever saw anything with the seer stone to begin with and that it was all, you know, a, a hoax. It, yeah. Where does that come from and is that credible in your eyes? Yeah. Well, I can't remember exactly who recorded that. Uh, whether it was Isaac or someone else. But um, I can picture there being a scene like that. You know, Joseph doesn't want to be at odds with his father-in-law, and he may have you know, said that he was not going to do anything in the treasure-seeking vein or magical again, uh, even though he certainly intended to keep on with the Book of Mormon. But... Um, I would be very skeptical of this, of an account of Joseph uh, saying he never had anything at all, that it was all a made-up story. There's a, a great um, tendency to want to attribute total falsity to Joseph Smith. And so people are going to take any little inclin inclination uh, in that direction where he's apologizing for any offenses made and turn it into a, a confession of error. And so I would want a lot of strong evidence to really accept that. Okay. So, so in your mind, that's speculation or slander, potentially. Not, not yeah. something that you've said yet. You know, he probably did acknowledge that what he was doing wasn't really legitimate. Right. 
because nothing in his afterlife led him that direction. He could have, you know, denied it anywhere along the line, and he never did. So, does that mean in your mind, either A, the treasure digging, spirit seeking stuff that he did prior actually did happen, where he was really seeing treasure and angels in mountains? Or, or maybe that he just thought he was. Those are the only two other explanations, right? Either it was fraud, or he really did see those things, or he thought he saw those things. Is that right? Are those the three yeah. options? Wh- where do you come down? Do you even have a... I know it's all we're all guessing, but do you have in your mind an image of which of those was likely the case? Well, I would like some evidence that he actually said, I see treasure in the earth. They... Um, it's it's possible. I can imagine a kid under pressure from his parents, you know, um, trying to do something and listening to little hints, and um, thinking maybe he's got a clue as to what's happening. And I I do think he had this knack of finding lost objects. So I'm not denying there isn't a, a genuine magical uh, strain in Joseph Smith's. Uh, Joseph Smith's mind and culture, but uh, I'm not sure that he said he saw caves with treasures in them. That's uh, I've just not seen any evidence of that as being very strong. I could probably be persuaded otherwise if someone came up with a document, but I don't think we have to make that decision on a pure speculation that maybe he actually claimed to have seen such things. So the best the best that you're aware of is that maybe the people who he associated with might have written about those types of experiences, but whether Joseph was actually involved. Right. Uh, other than, I guess, the silver mine uh, in, in Pennsylvania, right, where Joseph actually did say that he saw the silver mine, but it was too far underneath the ground to actually get? That would be, uh, that would be one where he did say he saw it, right? Yeah. You know, before I say anything on that, I'd like to see those sources again. I can't. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I look at your your book is so huge. I can't believe that I would even try and <laughs> ask you so much detail. It's, it's, it's extremely unfair. Yeah. But uh, you're doing great. So I, thanks for being a good sport about it. I, I'm just thinking about what comes to mind. Anyway, okay, so... Um, so he, he comes back, he, they reconcile with the Hales. Isaac's still not crazy about the Book of Mormon thing. Yeah, I would think that, I would think that Isaac Hale would have been really disappointed that it would be like, okay, you promised to give up the treasure digging. Oh my gosh, now we have to deal with this book. Right. I think that's exactly it. So he probably was just, had an ulcer from then on until, (laughs) until he died. Yeah. Because it just kept going. Okay. Well, um. And did Isaac ever come around to where he was a believer in Joseph or the church or anything? No. No. And what about Isaac's wife? Do we know anything about her? Um, I think I can recall specifically, but I, I'm pretty sure she didn't become a Mormon. Okay. Some of um, Emma's siblings were friendly towards the church and uh, welcomed Joseph and Emma into their homes in Illinois. Uh but I don't think the parents ever really were reconciled to Joseph Smith's Mormonism. Okay. Um, real quick, this is just a really, it's going to seem like a base question, but why couldn't people see the plates? Why didn't you just show them to people? 
Well, it is a good question. It would certainly solve a lot of headaches for us. Um, I mean, you, you, here you're just, it's, it's speculation. If, if people knew he actually had gold, if he actually had a pile of gold in his bedroom, uh, he, you know, his life would be at risk, I would think, that he would, there would just be constant assaults upon him. So long as it remained in the realm of rumor and possibility and fantasy, uh, the gold diggers are going to get excited about it, but probably... The thieves are going to get more excited. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So uh, it, it could be just a very practical reason keep him out of trouble. And then maybe maybe the God doesn't want people to believe based on proof. He wants them to believe based on faith. Maybe that's another explanation. Something like that. But I can tell you, if they did exist and people saw them then, there'd still be criticisms of it. Nothing is going to satisfy everyone. So there would be plenty of room for faith, I think, even so. Even if they had, had been shown, because people could say, oh, they really didn't see them. Cause, yeah, okay. or they were faked of some kind, or this or that. Okay. So um, what does he do? When does the trans... You know, what are what are his early experiences or experimentations with the plates? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we think, uh, all right, he's got the plates, he's got the Yerman Thummim, he just looks in the crystals and sees the translation, starts dictating, and that's that. I'm not so sure of that. I think it was a little bit more of a struggle. I mean, Oliver Cowdery tries to do this, and he doesn't get very far. And so it may have required some kind of spiritual or moral powers that he had to learn. I also think that it's possible he even after he started translating, he wasn't absolutely sure he was getting it right. Because how does he check whether or not he's writing down the right words? I mean, there's no dictionary he can go to. He's not going through any normal translation process. And so I've always had this hunch that one of the reasons for the for Joseph's interest in the Anton transcript was to check himself out to see if he was doing something right. Now, you're referring to the early mechanics, sort of the Martin Harris era mechanics of yeah. the translation, right? Right, the very, very start. That fall, when he's dictating to Emma, uh, and we don't know exactly when it began, but 1827, early 1828, before uh, uh, Harris goes to see Anton in February 1828. So... Um, my guess is a kind of a trial and error period there where he's getting the hang of things. And your your book almost gives the sense, well, well first of all, uh, let's just jump back. When he, he got the plates and you're saying he got what is referred to as a Urim Thummim, right? Right. And you said it's two crystals attached by some type of chain to a breastplate? Is, mm, is that I right? I don't know if it's a chain, but a supported uh by a breastplate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a in, in, the Yerman Thummim that he are those the only two things he got out of the hill then the plates and the Yerman Thummim. So far as I know, yeah. No sword or anything like that. No. Or Leahona. No. Okay, so he so he gets the Yerman Thummim out. He 
he gets the plates. They go to Palmar. They go to uh, Pennsylvania. When he's doing the early translation or experimenting, he's he's there's a nail up on the wall and there's a curtain. Is that right? And that's always shielding. Well, that's been conjectured, but no one knows that for sure. There's no description of him translating with a curtain. We assume it would have to be if if the plates were in sight. But later on, we know the plates were not in sight. They were wrapped in a cloth on the table. So it's quite possible uh, that was the way it was from the beginning. They were wrapped in a cloth, and he just uh, looked in the urine and thumb them. So I remember people saying that the that the the house where he supposedly did the translations still exists, and they actually went and saw the nail that was in the wall where the curtain hung. <laughs> I see. We know this nail hole must have held up the blanket. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> historical reconstruction, if there was any. <laughs> so you're 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 not one to buy that uh, necessarily. No, that would be a valuable nail, though, don't you think? Someone would have to yank that out and yeah. put it yeah. in church church uh, the church museum. Okay, so we don't we don't know if there was a curtain. You're saying, well, that's news to me because I've I, I've always. But then I thought about the curtain. How hard would it be for Oliver or Emma, whoever, to just kind of move the curtain and peek, right? Well, right, and um, yeah. Or if Emma was dusting, I, there's 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 accounts of Emma actually he- lifting the plates to dust under them and stuff. Is that yeah. right? And moving them about on the table while she does. But if I th- I think of my wife or anyone, you'd think they would just kind of take a little peek, don't you think? Well, I mean, Joseph wasn't in the room, and oh, let me just make sure this is you know. It, it's hard to believe they wouldn't peek or really try well, hard. Unless you believe what Joseph said of the angel, that you were not to look, in which case there'd be a powerful taboo against looking. Potentially like a Ark of the Covenant struck down dead yeah. kind of thing? Right. So right. maybe the fear of God was what kept them from peeking? The fear of God, yeah. Okay. So when I, I was reading your book it it makes it sound like when when joseph was doing some of the early uh experimentation he wrote some characters down is that right yeah and it almost sounds like you're wondering whether he sent martin off to find someone who might do the translation of the characters to then provide him sort of a rosetta stone to go on and continue the translation that that might have been part of his motive for sending martin off with the characters is there any did i get that wrong uh, I, I didn't mean to say that. I meant to say he might have um, asked for someone to check the translation because, you know, one of Martin Harris's counts of the Anthon interview implies that there were not only the characters but Joseph's translation of the characters. Yeah, so he could check the what he knew of Egy- Egyptian language with what Joseph translated it into, right? But it wasn't a Rosetta Stone thing where he's saying asking someone else to trans translate and then he would dope out what the characters meant. I don't think of that. I think he was just wondering, well, have I got this right? What do the learned people say? Okay. I mean, it would be. Uh, it seems like a Rosetta Stone would almost be impossible because, for the amount of words that that are in the Book of Mormon, there's not a one-to-one correlation between pair. I, I imagine there's eight times as many words in the Book of Mormon as there would have been characters on the gold plates, right? Like way more English words 
than actual Egyptian characters. There's not like a one-to-one character per letter or even character per word, right? A character in Reformed Egyptian would likely represent sentences, if not paragraphs. Do we have any idea? No, I don't know we have any idea, but if you try and figure out how many plates there were with characters on them, uh, it's not 584 pages of those characters, yeah. of those plates. So you know, there must have been some compression. Yeah. How heavy were the plates? Do we know? 40 or 50 pounds. 40 or 50 pounds. Okay. So what happened when Martin took the stuff to Professor Anthon then? Well, of course, that's the great, uh, that's the great dispute. Um he shows them the materials, and uh, Anthon, according to his own account, immediately saw the hoax and advised Martin Harris to uh, to extricate himself, give up this silly thing. Uh, Harris thinks um, that Anthon has confirmed the validity of the characters in the translation, goes back and carries on with Joseph Smith. So, it's, frankly, it's a mystery how they could have such opposite views. I mean, we can picture Anthon being embarrassed by even giving this guy the time of day once he found out what was involved and trying to um, prove he wasn't taken in for a second. But why would Martin Harris go back and keep working for Joseph Smith if Anthon had told him it was, it was ridiculous? I, find, I just find it hard to bring those two together. So that's a real that's a real mystery. Yeah. Right. Okay. But but Anton definitely denies Martin Harris's account, right? Yep. Okay. So Martin comes back energized, and then they and then they begin the translation process full force. Is that right? And how's uh, how's Martin's wife feeling about this? Well, she's uh, furious, of course. Uh, she, at least if we trust Lucy uh, Smith, uh, who had no love in her heart for Lucy Harris. Uh, Lucy Harris was something of a virago who wanted first wanted to see the plates, and then when she was denied it, uh, turned against Joseph Smith and and discredited him entirely. And um, I'm sure put a lot of pressure on Martin. So it's hard to know exactly what kind of a character Lucy Harris was. But I think it would be quite reasonable for her to be concerned that Joseph Smith was trying to swindle Martin. That is was the established accusation against all the money diggers and why money digging was illegal it's not because they thought people would steal anything. It was because they thought the people in charge of these money expeditions were trying to con the pe- people who were going out on them. So uh, she would, I think, quite naturally think her husband was being taken for a bath. Right. So Martin begins helping out with the translation. Um, and wh- what do we know about the mechanics of the actual translation? Not a lot. It's um, there are all these various theories about what's going on. I think is what is quite evident 
is that Joseph Smith was not looking at the plates. We do have a number of descriptions of him. The plates sitting on the table, wrapped in linen cloth, he looking at his seer stone, not the human thumb, but his seer stone, which is in a hat, which uh, he uses to darken the, the, the space right around the stone, which presumes that there was some light coming from the stone so that you had to read something that was faint and if there were other lights it would um, obliterate the shape of the letters so uh, we know that much and there are these theories that that's, that the stone or the inspiration would plant ideas in Joseph's head and then he would find the words. So it's very much his language, it's his story as he's inspired to dictate it. That's one theory. The other theory, which is the Royal Skousen theory now, is that the words of the translation actually appeared to Joseph Smith in the stone, and he just dictated them off. And they remained there until they were written down, and then they uh, disappeared, and new words came. And David Whitmer uh, describes the process somewhat this way. So, lacking um, a real explanation from Joseph Smith himself, I think we just have to, uh, you know, leave it like that. That there are these two accounts, and uh, we don't know exactly which one is is accurate. Now, I, I was under the understanding that when Martin Harris was involved, there wasn't a hat, and that he used what we would traditionally understand as the Urim and Thummim, which is these crystals. Yeah. Well, there is some evidence of that. That is true. Uh, but there... I And I have said as much in things I've written, but people who have looked at that evidence, scrutinized it carefully, say you don't really have evidence that you had the Urim and Thummim uh, because you, they use this word interpreters, which could refer to the seer stone as well. Later on, Joseph Smith did call the stone uh, a Urim and Thummim. So Urim and Thummim was a type of an instrument. It wasn't necessarily that specific instrument with the stone set in the breastplates. So we don't know if these crystals in the breastplate were ever used. There's no account of them ever being used. I don't think so, no. No. Okay, and um, and also, um, sorry, I'm just thinking. Uh, oh, well, th this begs a really interesting question, and I'm sure you get this a lot. And that is, why why ask the Book of Mormon prophets to spend all this time and energy creating uh -huh. gold plates, writing on them, handing them down through generations? Make Moroni walk all the way to Hill Cumorah from wherever he was to deposit them in the in the hill. Have Joseph Smith go through all this pain to hide them, and then when it gets to the time to actually create the book, he doesn't seem to use them. Yeah, that is a mystery, and it's a mystery that carries over to the Book of Abraham. Did he need those scrolls or not in order to translate? And I don't really have an answer with any authority behind it at all. It actually, I think, points towards 
the need for speculation about wh- why. I mean, let's begin by accepting as a fact that the plates were necessary, that all that effort was uh, not s- symbolic. They had to be there with the words written on them. Why would that have to be? And I, I don't really know, except that it seems to indicate some relationship between the physical and the spiritual. That for words to come into this man's head, uh, you needed the presence of a physical object that was laden with the efforts and and thought of uh, so many prophets preceding him. And, um, I, you know, I reached for for analogies, and the one that comes to me is induction. I don't know if you know the process of induction by which if you move a magnet across a wire, with you don't have to touch it, but just pass it across the wire, it sends, makes the electrons in the wire move in a certain direction. And that's the way electricity is generated, by making wires cross magnets. And you know, there you have some force radiating from the physical object that has an effect on the electrical current. So, but, you know, that's just kind of a fairly lame analogy. But uh, when it comes right down to it, I, I don't have an answer to that question. So that's, the, you know, most people would be just stunned to know that there's no real evidence that the plates were used uh, materially in the translation and that the Urim and Thummim, meaning the crystals in the breastplate, weren't used either. That's real different from the accounts that we kind of grow up with in primary and Sunday school and seminary. Yeah. Well, that's the account that's in the historical records, though, so we just have to live so, with so it. So we have to live with it. Um, uh, and, you know, this really does bring up the question, oh, two questions. Uh one is, isn't it completely dishonest or disingenuous to ever use the word translator or translation? Aren't those just the wrong words, first of all? Uh, and then I'll ask you the second question later. So let's start there. Why do we even call it a translation? Well, Nibley's discourse on that subject, um, what does it mean to translate, to carry over from one one culture or one time uh, to another. Uh, you know, we use the word translated to talk about bodies being resurrected or or uh, carried about one way or another. So I don't think you could call it um, dishonest. It certainly has misled us uh, into thinking that, you know, I used to speculate that Joseph Smith learned reformed Egyptian peering at those plates and coming up uh, with the words. Uh, and that, of course, is beside the point, if you see it this way. Um, so maybe we do need to have another word. I think we certainly need to make clear to our children as we teach them or whoever that what we refer to a translation is carrying a message from one culture into the language of another not necessarily by using a dictionary. So you do have to generalize or uh, change the meaning of translation from its ordinary usage. Okay. Uh, 
And do you think we need to change the art and the pictures and the graphics and the motion pictures that we are using to depict the process? Do you think it's disingenuous to continue having the curtain and using some type of spectacles and showing Joseph staring at the plates, thinking earnestly, and then, you know, dictating? Do you think that that's something we need to change maybe? Yeah, I definitely think we need to change it. It's not because, um, you know, it's a horrible mistake because (laughs) the guys who do those pictures are not trying to deceive anyone. That's what they think actually happened. It's it's just a matter of accuracy. And the problem is if you're not accurate, then you, down the line, you put your own um, credibility in jeopardy. And I don't. I just want to think all of our young people should feel like they're really getting the straight story on Joseph Smith, or they're going to go through the experience you had: disillusionment, anger. It's a very sad thing, and it's unnecessary. So we we do need to avoid that. So is it possible that somehow the mechanics were never really known, and so someone in the 1850s or 1860s, and let's say 19th century correlation? sort of just came up with this story, and even subsequent apostles and prophets sort of understood that to be the way that the the translation happened? In other words, when did we learn about the hat and the stone? Have we always known it, and we just never talked about it? How did this creep in, and how did it get allowed to to creep in the way that it did? Well, um, that's actually an interesting historiographical question, I mean, the, the stories of the hat and the stone were recorded very close to Joseph Smith's lifetime by the people who were there, Oliver Cowdery and and uh, David Whitmer and Emma Smith. So it's not like um, the, that we've that we've sort of made up this new version of it. it it's been there. But I think what threw us off was our own embarrassment about Joseph Smith. We so wanted him to be kind of a 19th century Protestant view of a prophet, you know, a noble soul, um, sort of partly ethereal, who um, speaks only spiritual wisdom, and not someone who's involved in magical practices, which is superstition and which Protestants are dead set against uh, in the 19th century. And that effort to kind of suppress anything that would scandalize Joseph Smith or turn him into a scandal, I think motivated the desire to make it all sort of lovely and, and commonsensical rather than anything that would be magical. So someone along the way maybe felt embarrassed or said, you know, people aren't going to buy this or people aren't going to believe it or people are going to think we're goofy. And so let's let's depict it, let's rewrite history and depict it in a way that's a little bit more palatable. Well, I'm not sure it's quite that calculated, but it has that effect that you just kind of uh, bolderize the story. You whitewash it and um, it ends up this way. So, so does, and you, I, I know that life is more complex than this, but 
I know a lot of people, it seems like some of the people who leave, they don't leave because they're weak or they're sinners or they're adulterers. They leave because they've got this view of what integrity and honesty is. And they, they always bought that integrity and honesty was like absolute, that there are blacks and whites and that there's mm-hmm. good and bad. And, and a lot of people would say to me, John, look, if the church knows that they're depicting the translation process inaccurately, it is their duty and obligation to stand up, do a general conference, tell everybody, all right, here's the deal. You know, we were saying it wrong. Here's how it is. And from now on, whenever it's depicted in a motion picture or in the end sign, we're going to stick his face in a hat with a stone in it. I, yeah. I, I knew you can't answer for them, but do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that just something you just have to leave to the way things are in life sometimes? Well, I think your, um, your depiction of the disillusioned person is probably quite accurate. It's It's the absolutist. It's that personality that sees things as black and white uh, that is going to be shocked and um, deeply offended by this whole thing. You know, it's not a, a personality that can't sort of tolerate ambiguity and realize people get caught in situations and there are all sorts of strange things come out that is going to feel like, you know, you've got to lay down the law one way or another and um, the church has failed to do that. So while I was thoroughly devoted to it at one time in my absolutist way, I'm now thoroughly against it in my absolutist way. So I don't know what to do about that kind of personality because they're going to have they're going to have troubles uh, with the church. That's, that's quite true. Yeah, and I, and I guess the church is in a bind. I, we all are all speculating, but they just can't come out and say we were wrong. And and here's the right way because one people may still think it's goofy and that may that might cause them to leave but also they'll wonder why there was the deception and then what else have we been deceived about right yeah well I I think there are all sorts of middle grounds they could just begin to straighten up and tell the story as the records tell it and um, say well we our artists previously had a different view of things we now are in a better position. Though I know there are still a lot of people who um, are averse to the magical thing. They think my book gets altogether too much credit uh, to magic. I hope we can overcome that. Uh, There's nothing malicious about magic. It's a form of supernaturalism that people the world over have believed in. And uh, the people who study magical practices from times past find much that's admirable in them, like there isn't Freemasonry. It's uh, it's not the devil's tool. It's it's a form of human questing for powers beyond themselves. And how much of this understanding about magic do we owe to Michael Quinn? Do you think, or is he just one of many? Do we should we sort of thank him for the research he did to help us really understand this better? Or well, the the, the basic research was done. Uh, before Michael Quinn by scholars of European culture and American culture. It's um, Keith Thomas's religion, the decline of magic is the, the key turning book, and then um, other books written about the Hermetic tradition in the Renaissance. And Michael built on that. Uh, I suppose maybe many Latter-day Saints learned nothing about magic until they came 
to Michael. The trouble is, is his book, um, it doesn't really put things in balance. What it does is it just piles it higher and deeper. It, it gets this huge material, collects it all, and assumes that this vast quantity of lore which developed over the centuries was in the minds of everyone who ever went out and searched for a buried treasure. Right. So it it kind of leads you astray at the same time that it opens up uh, a new world to you. So I think it's a fabulous work of scholarship and ingenious, I must say. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's really overblown in so many ways. Kind of like the dynamic about the fascination with Indians and trying to fit that back. Yeah, exactly. You pile it all up and think everybody in the world uh, is just totally absorbed in magic. Okay, okay. So you talked about uh, a couple theories. One, that Joseph was compiling his own, using his own words and, and his own stories and understandings to come up with the text through this um, this translation process. And the other one is that he's reading it word for word. And I've I've read the accounts where it says the words would appear and he'd read them. And then they disappear. But if that were the case, then you that would that would make one ask why changes were then made to the Book of Mormon in subsequent editions. If he was dictating from the mouth of the Lord word for word, why were tens or hundreds or even thousands of changes necessary? Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, that that is a a huge uh, problem for Revelation generally. It's not just the Book of Mormon, but the Doctrine and Covenants revelations, which have many changes in them, too, and goes into complex questions about the relationship to a prophet, of a prophet, to the God who's revealing his will to that prophet. And I think to say that the diction of the Book of Mormon is the diction of God, uh, you know, first of all, implies God speaks English, and... um, that these words are not necessarily Joseph's words, uh, when they do seem very much to be within the vocabulary of a 19th century New Englander. So uh, I think to eliminate Joseph Smith entirely from the picture, even if he was reading those words in the stone, uh, is going to get us in trouble, and I just don't think it's accurate. And I can't find a really clear way of describing how a prophet, a prophet's mind relates to the mind of God. Is his mind just a blank slate that God writes on, or does he work through the prophet's mind and culture to provide the words, even if they're written on the stone? To me, that's not necessarily the key point here. It's how does God get these words into his mind? And I just think Mormons instinctively feel that somehow God is working through the mind of the prophet. It's He's not a blank slate, uh, partly because that's the way we receive revelation ourselves. That's the way patriarchs receive revelation, bishops receive revelation. And uh, I'm a patriarch. I believe very strongly that the Lord is giving me words to save people. When I go home and transcribe it, boy, I straighten up the grammar. I may change a word here or there to make the, the sense clearer, 
and every patriarch I know does that. So it's it's just sort of the Mormon style, this somewhat loose relationship between the mind of God and the words that the prophet speaks. It's not one for one. So God doesn't dictate in his revelations, necessarily. Well, that's, that's word for, a hard... Word for word. Word for word, yeah, right. That he's works through the mind of the prophet. Yeah. This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archives of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today. Thanks again for listening.